0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, the prodigal co-host returns. After a year down in the bayou, I'm pleased to welcome Tiffany Bates back to the
1: show. Thanks, Elizabeth. It is great to be back, and great to be back in D.C. You mentioned I spent the last year clerking on the Fifth Circuit. Or Kyle Duncan, who who now is my favorite judge. So sorry to Judge Pryor that he's been demoted to my second favorite judge. (laughs) Um, But it was great. Now I'm back and working at a small appellate boutique in D.C., Consvoy-McCarthy. And I'm really happy to be there and back here.
0: So this week we're going to preview some of the upcoming oral arguments A few cases the court might take up later in the term, and I also recently sat down with Sarah Harrington, an alum of the Solicitor General's Office. Before we get into what's happening at the court, I wanted to mention that our mugs are back in stock, so show your love for the podcast and get a limited edition mug while they last. You can get them at shop.heritage.org. And listeners, we are still offering a 30% off discount code and free shipping. You'll want to enter four bananas, that's all one word, the number four, and the word bananas, all lowercase, at checkout to get your discount. Now on to the show. So Monday marks the start of a new Supreme Court term. The justices have already met for their long conference. This is the first time that they meet to discuss petitions filed over the summer. And we're waiting to hear if they'll grant review in any new cases so, we'll get into a few petitions in a bit, but before we do that, let's talk about some of the cases that are scheduled for oral
1: argument in the Justice's first week back. So, first, as, as a disclaimer, my firm is involved in several of the cases Elizabeth's going to talk about, so just wanted to mention that. Um, but first up is Collar versus Kansas, and the question in this case is whether the 8th and 14th Amendments permit a state to abolish the insanity defense. So a handful of states have gotten rid of insanity as an affirmative defense and instead have allowed criminal defendants to introduce evidence of mental disease or defect that shows they couldn't have formed the requisite intent to actually commit the crime. So the Supreme Court has refused to constitutionalize the McNaughton rule, which is gives me nightmares of <laughs> studying for the bar exam. Um, but that's the common law rule that says... A defendant isn't criminally responsible if he couldn't understand the nature of what he was doing or that it was wrong um, at the time he committed the crime. And the court has also, not that long ago, declined to hold that the Constitution requires an insanity defense. So that was Delling versus Idaho. Um, But there was a really strong dissent from Justice Breyer that Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor joined. Um, So we'll see where that goes. But the facts of this case are really horrible. So James Collar was very depressed he lost his job. His wife left him, and I think she had, like, an affair with another woman um, or something like that. And he kind of went crazy and killed his wife, her grandmother, and their two daughters. Uh, the grandmother's life alert system recorded the incident and specifically recorded a caller saying, I am going to kill her. I didn't even know. I didn't know that's what they, they I've did. I've fallen and I can't get up. Yeah. That's what I was picturing. <laughs> yeah. Um But at trial, Collar was not allowed to put on an insanity defense, but instead his counsel argued that he couldn't have formed the premeditation necessary for a capital murder conviction because of his severe depression. But the state argued that he nonetheless formed the requisite intent to kill, and he was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. And now he's arguing at the Supreme Court that Kansas has abolished the insanity defense in violation of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment and the Fourteenth Amendment's due process clause. Um, Kansas, on the other hand, says it hasn't abolished it, but just changed it, which it has the discretion to do.
0: So I think an interesting note is that one of the things Kansas argues is that the Eighth Amendment concerns uh, punishment, not what, what sorts of um, crimes and, and how states can define crimes and then decide what affirmative defenses to allow. Uh, so I'm wondering if that will come up at all. Uh, Turning to to another case uh, that will also be argued on Monday, Ramos versus Louisiana. And this is actually a rare afternoon sitting of the court. They have three arguments scheduled for Monday and they're taking next Wednesday off. So I I guess that they're front loading the week. Uh, So this this case asks whether the 14th Amendment incorporates the unanimous jury requirement of the Sixth Amendment against the state's. So the court previously considered this issue in a case called Apodaca versus Oregon in 1972, and this resulted in a fractured decision where four justices said the Sixth Amendment requires unanimous juries in both state and federal court. Four justices said the Sixth Amendment doesn't require unanimity in either. uh, And then Justice Lewis Powell was in the middle. He wrote the controlling opinion saying there must be unanimity only in federal criminal trials, but not in state trials. So for many years, Louisiana and Oregon have allowed non-unanimous jury verdicts for convictions in non-capital felony cases. Uh, In 2018, Louisiana voters passed a a constitutional amendment requiring unanimity in their juries going forward, and Oregon still allows non-unanimous juries. So the petitioner in this case, Evangelisto Ramos, uh, he challenges his conviction for second-degree murder. He, uh, he stabbed a woman to death after sexually assaulting her and then stuffing her body in a garbage can. So the only issue at the Supreme Court, though, is whether to incorporate the Sixth Amendment against the states. And both sides uh, marshal historical records and practices to support their reading of the Sixth Amendment. For example, Louisiana points out that James Madison's early draft of the Sixth Amendment mentioned unanimity, but that didn't actually make it into the final version of the amendment. And looking at the common law, unanimous juries were generally the rule by the time of the founding, uh, but actually only uh, six, six states expressly mentioned unanimity in their constitutions. Uh, so there was a variety of approaches, approaches among the states. Um, and the court has previously explained that not every feature of the jury as it existed at common law was necessarily included in the constitution. So the petitioner points to leading treatises as well as Blackstone's commentaries on the laws. Of England that discuss unanimity as a requirement uh, of of jury verdicts. Louisiana counters that Blackstone also said a jury must be made up of 12 male property owners. Uh, The petitioner also points out that Louisiana's non unanimous jury rule was adopted uh, in its 1898 constitution, which at the same time cemented a number of racist Jim Crow laws, such as enacting literacy tests, poll taxes and property ownership as requirements for voting. So not a great pedigree. Uh, I think it's interesting to note, though, that last term, the court incorporated the Eighth Amendment excessive fines clause, and this was a 9-0 ruling in Timms versus Indiana. This was decades after the court had incorporated other parts of of the same amendment. So I think a, a notable difference with this case, though, is that the excessive fines clause is explicitly mentioned in the text of the Eighth Amendment, whereas the unanimous jury rule is not explicitly in the text. Uh, so one one thing to watch for, we'll see how the justices treat the forty seven year old Apodaca decision. Uh, will Justice Kagan go to the mat for this precedent, as she has with uh, with many others, including unpopular ones uh, in recent terms? It'll be interesting to see because she's been really the the leading cheerleader for Starry Decisis. And and one sort of common theme between Ramos and uh, and the case that Tiffany was talking about, Kaler is these both kind of rate is a federalism issue and whether or not you agree with their views and what the states would like to do, uh, should the court defer to states' abilities to control their criminal justice systems. I think that that may be something on the minds of some of the justices as they approach that case. And then finally, on Tuesday, the court is going to hear three related cases involving Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 – uh, these are perhaps the highest profile cases uh, of the early part of, of this term. Uh, so Title VII bans discrimination in employment based on race, religion, sex, and national origin. In these cases, ask the court to decide whether sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity. So the first two cases, Altitude Express versus Zarda and Bostock versus Clayton County Georgia, uh, these were brought by gay men. Zarda was a skydiving instructor and Bostock was a child welfare services coordinator. Uh, they argue they were fired from their jobs because of their sexual orientation. The employers cite reasons that are unrelated to sex for firing them, based on complaints from customers in Zarda's case and for financial mismanagement that was uncovered during a routine audit in the case of Bostock. The employers argue Uh, In any event, though, Title VII's ban on sex discrimination does not include sexual orientation. So the third case is Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC, and this involves uh, the funeral home firing an employee who announced that he was transitioning to become a woman and would start presenting as a woman. And this would violate the the company's um, sex-specific dress code, and it it posed some other problems for the business, such as the, the employers had concerns about whether having a transgender employee might be disruptive to the grieving process of their clients. Uh, so the employee filed a complaint with the EEOC, which uh, at this time, um, this was the during the Obama administration, which had interpreted sex discrimination to include gender identity. This ends up going to the Sixth Circuit, which agreed with the EEOC, finding that discrimination based on transgender status necessarily entails discrimination on the basis of sex, quote, no matter what sex the employee was born or wishes to be. So now at the Supreme Court, the. Uh, the justices will have to grapple with a couple of precedents that make um, the textual case a little bit harder uh, for for the employers. So, in in the 1989 decision, Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, the court held that sex discrimination includes gender stereotyping. Now, of course, this uh, this did not create an additional class, but this was just a way of proving sex discrimination. And then in in On Call versus Sundowner um, Offshore Services in 1998, which was written by Justice Scalia. Uh, This decision held that same-sex sexual harassment is actionable under Title VII. But on the flip side, the court has held that not everything that is a function of sex falls within Title VII's prohibition. For example, uh, Congress amended Title VII to prohibit pregnancy discrimination after the Supreme Court ruled in General Electric Company versus Gilbert that pregnancy discrimination was not a form of sex discrimination. So whether Congress can act, I think, is certainly going to be on the minds of some of the justices. Um, For years, LGBT activists have sought to expand Title VII uh, by lobbying Congress. Uh, And while Congress has included sexual orientation and gender identity in other civil rights laws, for example, in the violence against women's reauthorization, in amendments to the Americans with Disabilities Act, in the Hate Crimes Prevention Act, for example, Congress has not amended Title VII Although I would note that the House passed the Equality Act, which would amend Title VII this past spring. So I think that will be, you know, fresh on the minds of the justices, whether they need to decide this or whether they should wait to see if, if Congress will amend Title VII on
1: its own. So next, there's a few cert petitions we want to highlight that the justices would have discussed at their um, their conference uh, first is Box versus Planned Parenthood, and the question in this case is whether a state can require an ultrasound as part of an informed consent at least 18 hours before an abortion. So this case is out of Indiana, and the Seventh Circuit struck down that provision, holding that the law the law burdens women seeking abortion and that those burdens outweigh Indiana's interest in protecting fetal life and promoting maternal health. So there are a lot of questions questions. Um, about how lower courts are supposed to evaluate these informed consent laws after the Supreme Court's decision in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, so that is definitely one to watch. Uh, similarly, June Medical Services versus G or Gee—I never know how to say it—and um, the question there is whether Louisiana's law requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at local hospitals conflicts with the court's decision in Whole Woman's Health. Um, which stru- struck down a Texas law requiring ad- admitting privileges. So a panel of the Fifth Circuit upheld that law, um, and Louisiana argues that it has a very different record than the one in Texas, which was an important part of that case, uh, and a different regulatory scheme. Uh, the Supreme Court has granted a stay of that opinion, so I think it's pretty likely that it's going to grant this petition, but we'll see.
0: A third petition involving abortion that's pending before the justices is Price versus City of Chicago. This is a challenge to a bubble zone ordinance criminalizing sidewalk counseling, peaceful protesting, or otherwise approaching other people without their consent uh, if you're carrying leaflets or other materials about choosing life. And this is within 50 feet of an abortion clinic's entrance. The petitioner is asking the court to reconsider Hill versus Colorado, a 2000 ruling that upheld a buffer zone restricting pro life speech around abortion clinics. So, that ruling is kind of hard to square with subsequent dec- decisions in the free speech area at the court, uh, including Reed versus Down of Gilbert and McCullen versus Coakley, which together provide a more robust content neutrality framework for reviewing government regulation of speech and also require that regulations must be narrowly tailored and not burden any more speech than is necessary. So these are definitely ones to watch, and we may see next week if they've been granted, if they've been denied, or perhaps relisted, as is often the case. Uh, the, the court likes to uh, relist a couple of times before before granting review. Well, next up, I recently sat down with Sarah Harrington. Sarah Harrington is a partner at Goldstein & Russell, Welcome to SCOTUS 101,
2: Sarah. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: So let's start with your early legal career. After graduating from Harvard Law School, you clerked for Rosemary Barquette on the 11th Circuit. Tell me about clerking for Judge Barquette.
2: It was great. Uh, So the the thing I remember the most about my interview with her was that I asked her, you know, how would you characterize your judicial approach? Uh, And she said, I just try to find the right answer. Um, And that (laughs) really spoke to me. um, And I really that sort of uh, ended up jibing with my experience with her that we would just sort of sit down and talk through legal issues and try to figure it out. Um, and, of course, she uh, she's now no longer on the 11th Circuit, but she was located in Miami, uh, and that was a fabulous place to clerk. I had never lived in Florida, let alone Miami, and um, I had a corner office with an ocean view during oh, my wow. clerkship. I know. It's a peak. <laughs> I peaked very early. I'll never have that again. Um, but it, we had a great time. It was really fun.
0: Did she have any traditions with her clerks? I've heard about some judges who have— you know, silly things like a, pancaking, a pancake eating contest or going for, you know, running marathons
2: together and things like that. She didn't have anything like that, but we did try to do sort of Miami things. So she had a lot of family in the area. One of her brothers had an avocado farm. So we went and checked that out, which was fun. Um, you know, we went and had drinks a couple times to watch the cruise ships come in and out, Um, fun stuff like that. We had a hurricane that wasn't really planned, (laughs) but it was very Miami. We had a good
0: time. Uh, So then you went on to work in the Civil Rights Division in the Justice Department
2: before moving to the Solicitor General's office. So how did you end up making that move? So I worked in the appellate section of the Civil Rights Division for nine years. uh, And that section, like all the appellate sections in DOJ, works pretty closely with the SG's office. So before they can... Intervene in a case on appeal, they have to get SG authorization before they can file an amicus brief. Before the division can take an appeal, they get SG authorization. So there's lots of uh, back and forth in terms of getting, you know, memo writing and meetings and things like that. And then um, when when there are cases in the Supreme Court that are within the subject matter area of a particular division, the assistants and the deputies and the SG uh, work with attorneys in the division. So, when I was there, um, it was 2000 to 2009, and it was sort of the height of the federalism revolution in terms of 11th Amendment challenges to federal civil rights statutes. And so, I had a lot of opportunity to work with the SG's office on cases that went up to the Supreme Court in uh, 11th Amendment challenges. And then also, I um, worked on defending the Voting Rights Act against ch- constitutional challenges. Um, so, I had a lot of experience with them. You know, most people who are hired into the SG's office as assistants have a Supreme Court clerkship. I did not have that. The only real exceptions to that rule are people who have worked with the office in some other capacity, either as Bristow fellows or as members of the appellate section of of an appellate section. Um, And so that's kind of how I came to their attention, I guess.
0: So now you've argued 20 cases before the Supreme Court. So uh, Lisa Blatt, watch out. (laughs) Uh, So tell me about your very first Supreme Court argument.
2: So my very first argument was in a case called Hamilton versus Lanning. It was a bankruptcy case about I think it was was almost a decade ago, so don't hold me to it. But something about how you calculate a debtor's projected future income in a Chapter 13 case. Wake up, everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the case was first given to me. um, And I thought, wow, bankruptcy. Great. I don't know anything about bankruptcy. And so the first thing I did was I went to the DOJ library and I checked out the nutshell on bankruptcy (laughs) just to sort of learn the terminology. And I saw that everyone who had checked that, let that book out before me from the DOJ library had been an attorney in the SG's office, um, which made me feel better. (laughs) So (laughs) I learned about that. And, you know, the sort of philosophy of the SG's office is that everyone is a generalist because Mm -hmm. those are audience. The justices are themselves generalists. And so it's not viewed as a bad thing necessarily to get a case and to be fresh to it because many of the justices will also be relatively fresh. Uh, And so um, and actually we were amicus in that case. I ended up sharing time with Tom Goldstein, who's now one of my law partners. So sort of a fun start to it all. So what have been some
0: of the most memorable arguments that you've had at the court?
2: Well, of course, the first one is memorable. And the thing that I look back on and remember from that one is that um, I described it afterwards. I said, you know, gosh, when I was telling people about it, I said, you're sitting at the council table and, and the bench is really high. It's like right really close to you and it's super high and you can hardly see them. And then the next time I was back there, I was like, it's not that high. You know? <laughs> so I really it was a, it was a real physical sort of experience for me. The. um the kind of home court advantage in a way that the court has. It's very, uh, the podium is very close to the bench. And um, for a first timer, it was really intimidating to me. And now I go back and I feel like, oh, it's actually a positive thing because you want to feel like it's a conversation. And um, they're they're close enough that you can kind of feel like you have a back and forth. Um, So that was pretty memorable. I had another argument. Podcast enthusiasts will have heard me talk about this on a different podcast. But the one argument I had where I had a moment of thinking, oh, my goodness, what is happening? And um, it was a statutory interpretation case, and we were kind of going along. And then Justice Breyer, in his way, said, oh, it's a rabbit duck. And it was not a case about animals. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) what now? And um, luckily, Justice Scalia came in and rescued me and said, "Um, no, that's a jackalope. What are you talking about? Um, And what he meant, what he was talking about was there's this sort of old... Um, trompe Loy thing a trick of the eye there's a picture that if you look at it if you kind of squint at it one way it looks like a rabbit and a squint at it another way it looks like a duck I had never seen that picture in my life if he had said oh it's old lady young lady or faces in the vase I would have known he was talking about but um, so it was one moment where I just felt like boy I don't know what's happening and then we kind of (laughs) moved on luckily Justice Scalia threw me a, um, a little rescue rope there Um, So that was one memorable. Another memorable one sort of went in the opposite direction. I had one argument where I got zero questions and um, at the Supreme Court. Yeah. Which almost never happens. Yeah. And it's, you know, you put all this work into it and um, all these moot courts and everything. And I was kind of going through my points. It was just an amicus argument. So I only had 10 minutes, but I was about maybe four minutes in and. I'd sort of said everything I felt like I really needed to say, and they were just looking at me. And usually, when that when there's a slow questioning day, the Chief Justice will kind of throw you a bone. And I sort of looked at him, and he he kind of raised his eyebrows, and I said, "Okay, you know, like <laughs> I think I said something like I think I've hit the highlights. If you don't have any questions, and just sat down." So.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure they, they appreciated you, you know, not going on for an extra six minutes and just sitting down. Yeah, <laughs>
2: usually if you're not getting questions, it's it's not always the case, but usually it means you're ahead. And so I thought, well, I might as well just like take that and not waste anyone's time. And we, end, we did end up winning that case nine nothing. So it was a good decision. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do you have any routines before your arguments? You know, I've heard about some people who have
0: a specific meal that they eat or have some sort of lucky charm or lucky socks. Do you have anything like
2: that? Nothing, not to the degree that other people have. People, Some people, you know, will only eat salmon the night before or will eat, you know, X number of bananas that morning. I try to get a good night's sleep. That's sort of a basic rule. Um, try to have some protein that morning and the night before. Um, I, you know, there's a different routine before I became a parent and after I became a parent now. I'm, <laughs> like, trying to get out the door without, like, oatmeal smeared into my clothes and things like that. So it's a little <laughs> less formal, I guess I would say. Um, one thing I did have is... Um, You know, the, for me, the jitters would really come in, in the sort of half hour when you're at the court kind of waiting for Mm -hmm. things to get going and you're just sort of sitting there and going over your notes. And so one thing I found, we we sort of used to joke in the SG's office about people having walk-on songs, you know, like Mm -hmm. baseball players do that when you're getting up to the podium and wouldn't it be fun if some walk-on song came on. Um, and so I would sort of, as a way of calming myself down and psyching myself up, kind of like play in my head, um, psych up songs, um. So what are some of your walk-on songs? So the first one that came to me, I think this happened in my third argument, um, which was an argument. It was the second argument of the day. They read Opinions that morning. Justice Ginsburg read a very long descent from the bench and so you're just sort of sitting there waiting and I started to get nervous and the Rocky theme kind of came to my <laughs> head and it just like it made me feel like I'm ready but also like it's, it centered me and calmed me down. The risk of that of course is you can't sit there bobbing your head because no one else can hear the music and you'll just look a little nutty but um, that's so I felt like that worked for me and so I tried to sort of do that on purpose going forward. That's great. So,
0: since attorneys in the SG's office typically wear morning suits, at least the men do, uh, what did you wear for your arguments?
2: I had a morning suit made that was sort of a skirt version, so uh, a long, you know, long um, tails in the back, not quite as long as that the men wore, and then a pinstripe skirt. Um, and it was funny, uh, you know, it, people had very strong opinions about it when I joined the office. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were only a couple other women, maybe three other women in the office at the time, and it was soon joined by Melissa Sherry. But um, people who had left the office called and lobbied me in both directions. Some people said, you have to do it. It's part of the tradition. Other people called and said, you can't do it. It's part of the patriarchy or whatever. And I was like, it's just an outfit, you know. And um, to me, it didn't feel like I didn't feel like I was making some big statement about feminism or Mm -hmm. um, the practice of law or anything. I just sort of felt like, oh, I'm so excited to be part of this team. And I would like to wear the uniform. And it it was fun.
0: (laughs) The uniform. Yeah, (laughs) I talked with uh, Judge Millette last spring about, you know, her her time in the SG's office and I asked her what she wore and she said clothes. Yes. I was like, okay, well, you know, people make a big deal about what the women wear because there haven't been that many women in the office. So I, I think it is an interesting thing. I'll have to see if I can find some pictures of you online to tweet out to our oh, listeners. Yes. Of,
2: I can send you some if you can't find them. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: the, the custom made morning suit for women. Um, So do you have a favorite area of the law? You you mentioned, you know, everyone in the SG's office has to be a bit of a generalist. Yeah. But are are there particular areas that you've really enjoyed working on?
2: So I have really enjoyed um, kind of one thing I loved about that office was getting to uh, know about new areas of the law. Mm -hmm. And um, so I really uh, I found that there were areas of the law that I would not have thought would be interesting that were very interesting. So I ended up arguing, I think, six bankruptcy cases. Um, so, my you know, my first one sort of uh, got me rolling, and, and I really enjoyed that. I found that I what I really like is statutory interpretation cases, mm-hmm. and so in bankruptcy, I also did a tax case. Both of those kind of contexts, you're sort of figuring out a statutory code, and it's a little bit like a puzzle, and um, I really— enjoyed those. Uh, I also did a bunch of criminal cases, and those were fun because usually you're also doing statutory interpretation. I'm arguing a case in November that's a Fourth Amendment case, so not so much statutory interpretation, but the criminal cases that I did were almost all, I think, statutory interpretation cases, and those were really fun. Um, You know, I've done some civil rights and some environmental work, and I find those substantively interesting also. Mm -hmm.
0: So you served under a few SGs. So who was your favorite boss?
2: Well, I'm not going to pick a favorite, (laughs) but I'll tell you. So I had two SGs and then a few acting SGs. Um, Elena Kagan was the Solicitor General. Uh, She's the one who hired me. So she, of course, has a very special place in my heart because she gave me the vote of confidence and hired me. Um, She was only there for a year, of course, before going on to grander things. But, um, (laughs) you know, I I learned a lot from her. She's a very strategic thinker. She's a really excellent editor. Um, And so uh, I feel like she helped me kind of learn how to better focus my analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Don Verrilli was there, for, I think he was there for five years. Um, and with him, I got, I got to know him a lot better. I worked on a number of cases that he argued. Um, and that's really, that part of the process is really where you kind of get to know the SG the best, you know, because there's a lot more back and forth and you see the highs and the lows. And, um, you know, he's a very um, creative thinker and a hard worker. And um, the thing that really, um, in the end, struck me, as kind of one of the most admirable things about Don is that he really takes seriously his role as a mentor at this point in his career that mm-hmm. it's very important to him to try to, um, you know, help younger lawyers and give them his wisdom. And um, so, I, you know, I've worked with him on a, a little bit of stuff since we've gone into private practice and I'm enjoying continuing that relationship. So now you're at Goldstein and Russell. So what's it like working with Tom Goldstein? It's really fun. I mean, anyone who knows him can imagine it's um, it's a fun environment. It's a very small firm that we have five partners and um, three other lawyers. It's, um, you know, we have sort of chosen a model where we are with people that we like. We have the luxury now of only doing the work that we really like to do. Mm -hmm. Um, We uh, try to. You know, you make an effort to sort of carve out time to spend time together when we're not working, but also to just get away from each other and spend time <laughs> with our families. And, um, and we're having a great time. It's my first ever private practice job. Um, so I was a DOJ lawyer for 17 years. And um, so I felt like, you know, I have a lot to learn about having clients and getting mm-hmm. business and stuff. And Tom has been a great um, teacher in that respect. And he's very generous with his time sort of substantively on helping me. One thing I miss about the SG's office is like having a lot of people to kick ideas around with that's, you know, there's aren't as many people in our firm, but he's very generous about that and also about sort of talking through the business side of it.
0: Mm -hmm. So as we kind of discussed earlier, there are not that many women who are arguing cases before the Supreme court. So I'm wondering why you think that's the case. Is it, is it because it's become such a specialty field where we have people like Tom and Neil Katyal and Paul Clement arguing, you know, a large portion of cases every term? Or uh, is there something else going on? And how do you think more women can break into the field?
2: So I think there's a couple of things going on. One is um, that, you know, clients are making the decision about who's going to argue cases. And they, um, they don't always have all of the information that would let them understand that there's sort of a wide, there's a deep bench of people who are qualified, and they kind of mm-hmm. want to hire the names that they uh, hear about the most often in the news. Um, and every solicitor general so far, except for Elena Kagan, has been a man. Um, she is not in private practice, of course, because she's <laughs> doing more interesting things, um, or at least different things. Uh, and so, um, you know, everyone except, you mentioned except for Tom, was the solicitor general or the acting solicitor general. Um, and so... Uh, and they're excellent lawyers and everyone who hires them is in great hands, but um, they, you know, there are a lot of, also a lot of other people who, um, who do wonderful work uh, at the podium, um, but they just aren't as well known to clients. And so I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also kind of a pipeline issue. You know, people say, and it's really true that the hardest argument to get is your first argument. Um, Mm -hmm. And so most people um, who are kind of in the biz now get it by going to the solicitor general's office, because when you're an assistant to the SG, you're guaranteed a certain number of arguments each year based on your seniority. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, you know, how you, uh, how you kind of rack up your numbers and get your experience. It's much harder to do it. If you just go straight to private practice, it happens, but it just takes longer and it's harder. And you kind of have to find a special environment where they really let people, you know, younger lawyers have an active role in, Uh, in the appellate work, and the Supreme Court work, and where the more senior people, uh, you know, do the work that's necessary to convince the clients to give the younger people a chance. Um, You know, pro bono cases provide a good opportunity for that because the client has a little bit less um, sort of pull in making those decisions, or at least you can bargain up front. You know, we will do this work for free if you sort of... Um, you know, give us a little more leeway in deciding who's going to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in terms of the pipeline, uh, as I mentioned, m- almost everyone who's hired into the SG's office has a Supreme Court clerkship. Not everyone, but almost everyone. Um, and until at least until recently, there's a real gender imbalance among Supreme Court clerks. And so I think it just kind of trickles up from there. Mm
0: hmm. Now, I think Justice Kavanaugh, is it this term
2: all of his clerks are female or was it last term? I think it was last term, but last I'm not term. sure. Yes, so, that's so he's doing his part so to, to yes. make sure we have more female. And I think what he was in the D.C. Circuit, half his clerks were women. Now, mm-hmm. of course, half of female, half of law students are women. And so it shouldn't be like, wow that's amazing, you know, but it is yeah. amazing. You know, there just aren't that many people who make that kind of effort.
0: Yeah. So when you're not busy arguing cases at the Supreme Court, what do you like to do for fun?
2: So I'm mostly chasing the kiddos around. I have a four-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old stepson. And, um, you know, my husband and I work hard during the week. And we try to just, um, as much as we can, put work aside in the evenings and weekends and spend time together. We live on Capitol Hill. So, we, you know, you can often see us scooting as a family of four around <laughs> Eastern Market. We had to buy scooters to keep up with the kids. Uh, and it's pretty fun, um, you know, going to swimming lessons and soccer games and all that kind of fun stuff.
0: So if you if you hadn't
2: become a lawyer, what do you think you'd be doing today? So it's it's an interesting question. It's hard for me to imagine doing anything else because I really love being a lawyer. Um, I, you know, I am very unjaded about the practice of law and I really um, I just have had wonderful jobs and really enjoy it. But the, the other thing I considered seriously when I was younger was becoming an English professor, getting a Ph.D., and studying, um, you know, 19th century American literature. And um, someone once said to me when I was applying to law school, gosh, why do English majors go to law school? It seems like so different. And I said, and I still really feel this is true, that, you know, doing a close reading of a poem, as one does as an English major, um, is really not that different from doing statutory interpretation. Mm-hmm. You're kind of like thinking about the text and how different pieces of the text fit in with other pieces of the text and um you know, bringing your sort of logical, analytical skills to bear. Um, and so although being an English professor sounds pretty different from being a Supreme Court advocate, <laughs> I think there's a lot of the same. There's a lot of overlap in the skill set there. Mm-hmm. So one
0: final question, something I ask all guests go SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about?
2: So this is going to reveal— how much of a nerd I am, if it hasn't already become clear, uh, I would really like to talk to William Howard Taft, um, who was Solicitor General and then President and then Chief Justice. And um, you know, I was, as I mentioned, I was a government lawyer for a long time. And I would just be fascinated to hear how that progression of jobs sort of made him, how the previous jobs made him behave maybe differently in the next job. So how being SG, uh, you know, informed his uh, performance as president and then how having the subsequent jobs made him look back and feel differently about the previous mm-hmm. jobs. And, and uh, you know, he always
0: had the, the chief justice uh, position as sort of his career goal. Yeah. Uh, so that's great that he finally got there. Yes. And <laughs> funny
2: to think like, well, on the way, I'll become president. You know? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: um, well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was great. All right. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. I'm going to try to stump
1: Tiffany. No, I'm not prepared for this. I feel like my trivia game has suffered in Have, Louisiana.
0: <laughs> well, it's Louisiana Fifth Circuit themed trivia. Oh, no. Let's see how much you learned. Okay. <laughs> All right. First question. There's only been one Supreme Court justice from Louisiana. Oh. Can you name who it is?
1: No, I didn't know there were any. Okay.
0: Uh, well, it was Edward Douglas White who was appointed by President Grover Cleveland in 1894, and he was elevated to chief justice by President Taft in 1910. And he was chief justice until he died in 1921.
1: Oh, interesting. Did not know
0: that. All right, next question. The Supreme Court effectively ratified this land deal in American Insurance (laughs) Company versus Cantor, an 1823 decision discussing... What authority territorial courts possess? Um, the Louisiana Purchase. Okay, so I had to give you a <laughs> little, you know, a little bit easier one. Uh, yes, the Louisiana Purchase was regarded by by some people as an illegal uh, purchase. Indeed, it's been reported that Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1803 that a constitutional amendment might be necessary to authorize the purchase retroactively.
1: Hmm. Third question. I didn't know there was a lawsuit about it. I had heard the, the Jefferson thing before. Interesting. All right, now on to Fifth
0: Circuit, okay. Louisiana <laughs> trivia. Uh, the Fifth Circuit was split up in 1981 to create the Eleventh Circuit. Which of the following was never under the Fifth Circuit's jurisdiction? Florida, the Panama Canal Zone, Alabama, or Puerto Rico? Oh, uh, Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico. That is correct. Puerto Rico falls under the First Circuit's jurisdiction. Now, the Panama Canal Zone was under the Fifth Circuit's jurisdiction until 1982 when that was transferred to Panamanian control.
1: Okay, interesting. No, I definitely knew Florida was because one of the uh, judges in Florida, Judge Joe Flat, I think that's how you pronounce Mm -hmm. his name. um, I remembered he was originally appointed to the Fifth Circuit and he sits in Florida.
0: Yes. Um, Okay, final question. Yes. Who is the Fifth Circuit's courthouse in New Orleans named after? Oh, John Minor
1: Wisdom. Yes, of course. I've been in the building many times, and it's very beautiful. It's my favorite place in (laughs) New Orleans. Uh, Judge John Minor Wisdom, he was a
0: legendary Fifth Circuit judge known as one of the Fifth Circuit Four, a group of judges who advanced the civil rights movement in the law in the 1950s and 1960s.
1: And Judge Pryor clerked for
0: him. That is correct. You know, if you go to his Wikipedia page, it has a list of notable clerks, and I believe Bill Pryor is the very first one, as he should be. First in our hearts as well at SCOTUS 101. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Well, Tiffany, welcome back. I'm so glad you could join me this week. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.
1: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.